We understand that the persecution of believers is real. It is ongoing. It is a constant thing for many in the body of Christ. Just within the past couple of weeks, Christians meeting for prayer in India, attacked by a mob. Seven people professing faith in Christ killed by gunfire in Egypt. Two men executed in Somalia because they would not renounce Christ. These stories are not unusual. Most of us have never come close to suffering in that way for our faith in Jesus Christ. We may face a loss of friendships. There may be times when we are shunned, perhaps, by a family member or others because of faith in Christ. Some of you may have taken a stand for Christ in the workplace or at school, and it may have incurred some loss in social standing, maybe even income at the job for something that you have chosen to stand for. But for the most part, being Christian in America is probably generally safe. I grew up at a time, in fact, many of you did as well, when people claimed Christianity who weren't even believing in Jesus Christ. It was just sort of a label that, that seemed to fit this good moral structure. And so people, when asked for surveys, would say, oh, sure, I'm a Christian, even if they had no understanding of what it means to genuinely trust in Jesus Christ. George Barna, who's done a lot of research like this, said as recently as 2017, 46% of Americans claim to be Christians, numbers that have dwindled over the years, but only 10% of Americans have a genuinely consistent biblical worldview. So even recently, there's still this great dichotomy between those who would be willing to say, oh, sure, I'm a Christian, and those who actually believe what it says in Scripture. That may be changing over the last decade. Certainly, the experts say more and more we are moving into what is described as a post-Christian era, uh, declines in church attendance, religious affiliation, polls show and belief in God and prayer and those sorts of things. We've certainly seen an increase in open hostility against biblical Christianity. Uh, it has seemed to be more room for people to openly criticize what have been sound doctrines of Christianity that we would believe as the truth of God's word. If you have any doubt about that, just go on Twitter. You'll see hatred of everything and everyone somewhere on Twitter, but certainly of Christianity. There was a woman who has about 7,000 Twitter followers who recently posted, she said, telling people that the divine ruler of the universe expects them to remain sexually abstinent until legal monogamous marriage for life between a man and a woman who identify with their birth gender and are attracted to the opposite. That's a long way of saying those who believe in biblical marriage would be a one man, one woman, um, all that, telling people that is trash and abusive theology. That is not an uncommon perspective amongst our culture more and more, that sound Christian doctrine is not just wrong, but is hate speech, is abusive in some way. In many parts of the world, hatred for Christianity began with the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is Simultaneous with the, the birth of the church, there is hatred as well for it, and we should not be surprised by that. That's the message that we see this morning in John chapter 15, is that Jesus Christ promised hatred and persecution. Now, we are in a, in a series of messages from John 14 through 17 that we've called Promises for Pilgrims. It is a passage that revolves around Jesus' last night with his disciples. It is the night before the day when their world is turned upside down, that day on which their Savior is tried and falsely charged and is 
crucified, is taken outside the city of Jerusalem and nailed to a cross and hung there to die. But on this night, Jesus Christ is doing what he does throughout his ministry. He's doing what John 13, 1 starts this whole section by saying, he loved them to the uttermost. Jesus Christ, on this night before what he would endure, is concentrating on loving his disciples and teaching them and giving to them promises that not only will help to guard their hearts through the next 24 hours and the next couple of days, but long after he has risen and ascended, these are promises that he has given to his church to bring encouragement. Promises, as we've seen already, of of power, power for ministry. Promise that we would be joined to Christ. The promise in John 15 of the, the vine and the branches that leads to fruitful ministry. Promise of his presence with his people through his spirit. All of these promises that we've seen And they continue here at the end of John 15, but the one that he gives here is not one that we generally cling to, and we generally, when we're listing promises that God has given, specifically that Jesus has given in this farewell discourse, this is not one of the ones that we generally go, and then there's this one, because he starts it off in chapter 15, verse 18, and puts it this way. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Among the promises, this is a pretty sobering one. This is Jesus Christ saying to his followers, not just to those immediate disciples that are there before him, but as John records the Gospel of John as he puts this into writing to disseminate to the church decades later, it is a promise that as well is speaking to the church, to followers of Jesus Christ, and it is the promise that we will face hatred and persecution. He says, these, these will be your lot. If they persecuted me, and we know they did, if they hated me, and we know they did, they will also persecute you and hate you. There's a key to this passage. We're going to go all the way through this, down through the first four verses of chapter 16, but I would say to you, just by way of introduction, the, the sort of pivot around which this discourse, this, this promise in particular, seems to revolve is the word remember down in verse 20. When he says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Remember is a command. As you look through the New Testament and as you look through the, the, the teachings of the New Testament, one of the things you look for are God's commands, present imperative verbs, things that say, this is what you are to do. Remember is a command. It is God speaking to us. It is Jesus saying to us, this is something that you must think about. The only other imperative in this section is back in verse 18 when it says, if the world hates you, know. Know is also a command. You are to continue knowing this. You are to think on this. The promise in this passage of persecution and hatred is real. But here's the thing. Most of us don't want to dwell on those things. 
Most of us, as we're, as we're reciting promises of God, we want to think on hope. We want to think on his grace. We want to think on his promise of eternal life, on the promise of his spirit. But we don't often rally around the promise of, and also, he said, we would be hated and persecuted, which is why Jesus, in his kindness, says, remember this. I command you to think on this. Occasionally, we are confronted by the fact that Christians around the world experience Horrible suffering because of that hatred. Stuart talked about it during the prayer time before. Today, as you see in our bulletin, is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. I would love to tell you that in my skillful wisdom and planning, this passage overlapped with exactly that day. Those of you who know my planning and strategizing well know that that is not the case. It was God's providence that we are in this passage on this day. But the fact that we have a day called the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, is probably a sobering reminder to us of how easy it is to have that be out of sight and out of mind. Occasionally we see it on the news. Occasionally we think about it and we're reminded that there are brothers and sisters in Christ who are tortured. But for the most part, we don't know that. We don't experience that. We don't have our villages burned. We don't have our homes taken away. We don't see loved ones actually killed for Christ or have our own lives threatened for that. We don't live in a situation in which we may be given the lowest, worst of jobs in the culture simply because we belong to Jesus Christ. We tend not to think on those things, and yet what Jesus is saying here is we should. You must know this, and you must remember this. Jesus in this passage doesn't offer an escape strategy. He doesn't say, this could happen, but I'm going to get you out of it so you don't have to worry about it. In fact, he says, this will happen, and you need to remember that I said that it will happen. And he does that for a really important reason. So this is kind of the big idea of what we're going to see this morning. Jesus Christ commands his followers to know and to remember his promise of hatred and persecution so that we will not lose heart when it happens. He's emphasizing this, and he's telling us to remember this so that in that hour, we will not be surprised. We will not lose heart. We're going to see that as we get into chapter 16. Jesus is essentially saying to us, remember this promise so that you won't fall into something worse than being killed for me. And that would, would seem sort of ironic that there could be something worse than being killed. But what he's saying is being shocked by persecution and hatred that would turn you away from me because of it. That's what I want to guard you against. I want you to think on these things and know these things so you're not surprised Worse than losing all of my possessions and being thrown into prison for my faith in Jesus Christ would be denying Jesus Christ in order to preserve my life and keep all of these possessions and then losing him for eternity. That's what's worse. And that's why he is seeking to guard us against this. That's where we're going this morning. So think about the background leading up to his statement of if the world hates you, know that it has hated me. Jesus, remember, has already told his disciples, I am going away. I am, I am going, and where I'm going, you cannot come. So he has already begun to set this scene for them where he has said, you will carry on 
fruitful, effective ministry. I will not be physically present with you, although he is in us in his, through his spirit, but in hours Jesus Christ was going to be arrested and falsely charged and executed. And his disciples would be in shock. And it's into that that Jesus injects this. Know that the world's attitude, what you witness over these next hours, doesn't change. Because if you're one of the disciples and you think, Jesus, after he has been crucified, after he has been risen, 1 Corinthians 15 says he is seen alive by more than 500 believers, potentially there's the thought that now, now the world has to get it. I mean, he rose from the grave and now they get it, right? And Jesus is laying out for his disciples right here, telling them up front that you need to know that the hatred that you see carried out toward me will also be carried out toward you, and you should not be surprised by that. You should, in fact, expect it. The disciples, over the next 12 to 18 hours, were going to see hatred like they could have never imagined. They've walked and talked with Jesus. They've seen opposition to Jesus. They've seen threats to Jesus. But now, the Roman governor is going to take Jesus and have him whipped and beaten strictly to try to appease a bloodthirsty crowd, a crowd that wants Jesus taken away. And so this Roman governor is going to have Jesus whipped and beaten, will have a crown of thorns impaled on his head, and he will drag Jesus out in front of this crowd saying, look at this man, behold the man, I find no guilt in him. Fully convinced at that point that the horrifying appearance of a gentle and innocent man who was beaten to near the point of death would be more than enough to placate that crowd. And instead, what do they do? They scream out, crucify him. They're not simply at that point desiring that Jesus be dead. They want him to suffer at the hands of the perfected form of execution that the Roman government has used against its worst enemies. We want him to suffer until the moment of his last breath. Knowing what Jesus was about to face, knowing what he was about to experience, Jesus says to his disciples, you too will suffer. You will be hated you will experience persecution. It's into that context that he makes this promise to them. The word if shows up there in verse 18, right at the beginning of this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Down in verse 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It sounds as if it maybe is conditional, might not happen, maybe there's a chance. The reality is the world has already shown its hatred. By the time John writes this in the latter part of the first century, there is already the, the persecution of the church that is underway. There is already the, the hatred and the persecution that is being poured out on believers in Jesus Christ. The reality is that the world did hate Jesus and it did persecute him. The only condition here really is verse 19. When he says, if you were of the world... The world would love you as its own, but because you're not, I chose you out, therefore the world hates you. The only real condition here that he gives is you're either of the world or you are of Christ. You either are those who belong to this group over here who have rejected Jesus Christ or you have been saved by him and you are in Christ. And for you, the promise of hatred and persecution is real. And it gets worse, <laughs> 
Look at verse 2 of chapter 16 for a minute. We'll go through all these verses in between, but I just want you to see in 16.2 it says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. That is a profound statement. To start with the, what seems the simplest part of that, and that is the synagogue is the, the focal point of life for the Jews in their community. They live as a despised minority in the Roman world of that day. They understand their place, and so the synagogue is sort of the, the community center, if you will. It's, it's, it's where you go, where people know you, and they love you, and you find community, and you find fellowship. And Jesus says, you start believing in me, and they will put you out. The people that you've grown up with, that you've loved, that you have been around, that you have found fellowship with, you turn to me, and they will hate you to the point that they will cut you off and they will have nothing to do with you. They will ostracize you. That's already begun to happen, even at this point as he's speaking, and certainly by the time John writes this. And as if that's not enough, Jesus says, some of you will be murdered, and those who kill you will claim that they are slaughtering you as an act of worship to God. The accusation against Jesus we saw time and time again was what? Blasphemy. He is mocking God. He is claiming to be God, and that's what makes him worthy of death. And so what he's saying here is they will put you to death and actually believe that that is a reasonable act of worship to God by putting you to death, by slaughtering you. And Jesus says what you should know is what is behind this. What's the cause of this persecution? What is the reason for it? They don't hate you just because of who you are, because you believe something different per se. They hate you because Christ is in you. They hate you because of your relationship to him. And that's what he's going on to say in this passage. They hate you because you are joined to me. It is on account of me, he says. Verse 21, all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. It has to do with what they believe, if anything, about God, and because they they don't believe that God sent me to be the Savior, and they hate me, then they therefore hate you. You are joined to him. So the hatred you experience is because of the fulfillment of all these other promises, which is that I am in you, and I am strengthening you, and we share the most intimate of unions, that between the believer in Jesus Christ and his or her Savior. What, what that means, and what we saw this last week in John 15, is the life of Christ is being worked out through us. People are, are seeing Christ and experiencing Christ through us because he is in us. And so if they hated him, then they hate the, the presence of Christ through his people. When, when we get to next week's passage, Stuart will be taking us further in chapter 16 next week. And one of the things that it, it will emphasize is that one of the things the Holy Spirit does is he convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And what he's saying there is that as the Spirit of God works through you, one of the things it does is it exposes people's sin of unbelief. It causes them to see that they, they don't believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and, and that they lack, as, as he describes in chapter 16, that righteousness, that right standing before God. As the Holy Spirit is functioning through you, you're living out a Christ-like life and you're making choices based on following after Christ and his word. One of the things that should be doing is, is bringing 
conviction to the lives of other people around you. It's not, not trying to make them feel bad for the sake of making them feel bad. It's the work of Christ that not only should the people around us experience the joy and peace of Christ because that flows through our lives because we rest in him, but they should also experience the holiness and righteousness of Christ coming through us. And that should convict them. That should cause them to, to desire something more, to know Christ for those who reject him, it is just this inescapable sense of conviction. Look back again, verse 21. Let's just read through these verses. John 15, 21. Jesus says, But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Let me stop there. This passage is not suggesting that the only way people are guilty before God is if they actually see Jesus Christ. That, that would almost seem to be an implication when it sounds like, well, they, the, the guilt comes because now they have heard and seen Jesus and seen his works that now they are guilty. What he's talking about there is, is, is it's very clearly it is the sin of rejection that is the issue. The, the New Testament is abundantly clear that we are all guilty. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. That goes back to David in the Old Testament. And I was conceived in sin. I, I started from the very beginning as a rebel against God, as, as defiant against my creator, wanting, wanting what we all came in life wanting to be, in charge, doing my own thing, pleasing myself, get out of my way and let me do what I want to do. And the only thing that ultimately changes that is the saving work of Jesus Christ, to bring us to that place of trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. So we're all guilty. The, the point that he's saying here is his, his coming, his proclamation of the gospel, the works that he did, shines a light on the rejection of Jesus Christ. It makes that sin that much more glaring. Because when he talks in verse 22 about this sin in particular, he's talking singular. Uh, they would not have been guilty of sin, singular, but they now have no excuse for their sin. He's talking about the, the, the particular sin of rejection of Jesus Christ that has been spotlighted by the fact that Jesus Christ has come and he has proclaimed to them the truth and offered them life and forgiveness and they have despised him and rejected him. The same then is true for you and I. All men are guilty. All men are condemned before God apart from Christ. But as we, as his body of Christ, proclaim the gospel, as we speak about Christ, as we proclaim the truth, it is, it is also serving to highlight the guilt of those who reject Christ. It is serving to, to sort of exacerbate those feelings of not being right with God and the lack of righteousness that they have. When the gospel is proclaimed, it is the opportunity for forgiveness and salvation. And for those who reject it, it remains a case of flaunting their own rebellion. And so what Jesus did in person, and what now you and I as believers in Jesus Christ do in proclaiming the gospel as the body of Christ, his spirit in us, 
Part of what we do is re we reveal man's sinfulness. Not, not so that we can sort of take a holier-than-thou view, not because we've got it and they don't and you're a sinner. No, we, we come as humble people who know that we are sinners, that we have stood in defiance of God, that we sin against him. But it's not the gospel if we don't actually show people their need of a savior. If all we show is Jesus is just some loving guy who's come to give them all good stuff and make everything great, and we leave out the part that you are separated from God by virtue of your sin and you are in need of a Savior, then we've missed the gospel. We're just giving them some sort of self-help talk at that point. And so our gospel includes bringing people to the place of seeing that you're in defiance of God and the right judgment of a holy God is to spend eternity apart from him. It is to suffer apart from him. And so that kind of message, not all the world embraces that message, do they? Not everybody wants to hear that. You've had family members and loved ones that you've sought to share that with, and they have said, that's it. <laughs> that's all I want to hear about that. That's foolishness. And they've shut you off. But that's what the Spirit does through us. Romans 2 describes how even non-Jews, even people who've never had God's laws given in the Old Testament, they demonstrate that they have this sort of built-in conscience that is at work in them, and it's like a moral compass that produces guilt when they disobey God. And so Romans 2.15 says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. The holy presence of God through his spirit, through his people, should also bring about a sense of conviction for people. There's, there's something internally, some God-ordained compass in there called the conscience that says, this is not right, this is not pleasing to God. You, you can't bring this before God. And so the world then tries to figure out what to do with that. And they deal with it in all sorts of means. Drugs, alcohol, you name it, or works. Okay, so I can't bring that to God, but I'll do all this other stuff that I think that I can bring to God. The point of the gospel is to say the only way is, is, to, is to come through the cross. It's Jesus Christ who has taken all that sin on himself and died in our place. And apart from that, man is left feeling the overwhelming weight of his guilt and trying to find some way to alleviate it. That's why they hate Jesus. If they're not going to run to him... They will not believe in him, and they will hate his gospel. And that's what Jesus is saying here when he says that this is on account of my name. As my presence is ministered to these people, then, then that's the reaction you should expect. In the presence of the sinless Son of God, we are aware of our guilt. That's the, the great illustration of Peter when they are out by the boat, and, and he realizes now that this guy who has just told him to drop the net over there, and it's now loaded with fish, is actually God in flesh. And Peter's like, go away from me. I'm a sinner. I can't stand in your presence. All I sense right now is my guilt and your perfection. How can I possibly be near you? If, if we're living out the life of Christ, then the holiness of God should be demonstrated through us. And people will either, will either respond to that by hearing the truth about Jesus Christ and running toward him and embracing him as savior for what he has done in their place, or they will reject him and despise him and despise his people who proclaim that. So that's the reason behind the promise. 
And, and, and in fact, he spends time in verses 26 and 27 reminding them again about the presence of the Holy Spirit because it is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, as he describes him here, who is proclaiming his truth through us, and it is that truth that convicts. It is that truth that points out guilt. It is that truth that says, I'm striving and I want to please God, but I just, nothing seems to do it. And it is the Holy Spirit who is working through us, the one who gives life, who, if you do not come to Christ, is also the one who brings condemnation through us. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, it's an aroma, it's a fragrance of life, or it's an aroma of death as this gospel is preached. It, it is to those who are embracing Christ, it is the greatest thing we have ever heard, and we receive it, and we, we see our lives saved by it. And to those who reject him, it is the message of condemnation, and they hate it. That's why the world hates believers. It is, as Jesus says, on account of my name. Because unbelievers are caught in the guilt of their sin, refusing the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so the attitude then is to somehow silence the message. If you're going to tell me that my lifestyle, if you're going to tell me that my actions are sinful, that they're not pleasing to God, I just want to shut you up. I don't want you to tell me that. I don't want you to be able to say that. Because I don't want to hear it. And so they reject it and they hate it. Because the gospel convinces unbelievers, convicts unbelievers of the wrath of God. So he says in verse 26, the Spirit does this. The Spirit who proceeds from me bears witness about me. In verse 27, you also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. It's really not as much a future tense in verse 27. The New American Standard puts the little will in verse 27 in italics because it's not really there in the text. It's you also bear a witness. It is a statement of fact that we as the body of Christ are bearing witness to Christ. If we are living out Christ-like lives, then people are seeing Christ and the Holy Spirit is working through us. And, and, and he is being proclaimed, and we are bearing witness to Christ. And so from the world's perspective, talking about Jesus Christ the Savior means talking about their sin and their guilt, and if they don't want to hear about their sin and their guilt, then they just assume you shut up. And if they can do that legally or by force in some way silence you, they can do that as they did with Jesus, which was to say, crucify him. All he's done is say that we're terrible people, that we, we are descendants of Abraham. We are God's people. We do everything we do is, is because we are related back to Abraham and we're all good. And he somehow tells us that we're not, that we're, we're children of the devil he's accused us of. Silence him. Just crucify him because we don't want to hear what he has to say. We must know this. That's what Jesus is saying. And we must, verse 20 says, remember this. Remember, Jesus said, you are not greater than your master. And so if they reached a point where they said, we don't want to hear him one more time, crucify him, then know that they will not want to hear from you at some point, and they will hate you, and they may persecute you, and they may ostracize you, and they may kill you and call it an act of worship, because they will link you to me. Because they hated me, they'll hate you. And then he says this in chapter 16. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, when it, their hour being when it looks like they've suddenly got the upper hand, when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Here it is. 
Jesus Christ gave this promise to his disciples on this night and, and to us because he wants us to know this and believe this and remember to expect hatred and persecution because Jesus understands the frailty of humanity and the temptation that we will face in that hour when they seek to have the upper hand, in that hour to say, how do I avoid this? How do I make this stop? Is there some way to get out of this hatred or persecution? Maybe for us it's just, is there some way that I, I avoid embarrassment? Is there some way I avoid being unfriended? Is there some way I avoid shame? And so maybe I don't talk about Jesus. Maybe I, I, I don't answer that question honestly the way that I know I should. Maybe I don't address that person and their lifestyle. Because if I talk about Jesus and they don't like me anymore, then I'm going to feel sad because I'm not liked. And Jesus Christ is here saying, remember this. I promised this to you so that in that hour, you won't do something foolish. You won't turn away. You won't get overcome with fear and temptation and say, oh, please, just get me out of this pain. The, the Greek word for falling away there in verse, six, in verse 1 of 16, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away, is the idea of stumble. It's used often in the New Testament. Often in relation to sin, we see it in instances where it's talking about don't make someone else to stumble. Don't allow your sin to cause offense to them in some way that would, would cause hardship and stumbling on them. But the picture here is don't, you don't fall away. And so the, the, the idea here is I'm, I'm walking along, I am claiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and suddenly my following of Jesus Christ means I am facing a cost. Suddenly, I am facing a situation where people now look like they don't like me because of what I believe, or they might do something to me, and there is some kind of price, and suddenly, there is cost, and the thought comes to mind of, how do I stop this? What do I do in this moment? Suddenly, my beliefs are called hate speech, and I face punishment for them. Might be a cost to my ego to my prestige, to my belongings, to my family, might even be a cost to my own well-being. In that moment, that suffering, that cost is what's threatening to trip me up because I start weighing, what do I want to keep here? What do I, I, want, I want to save my life. I want to save my children's lives. I want to save my stuff. I want to save my prestige. Jesus says, I'm telling you this now so that you will remember it to keep you from falling away. Because the temptation in that hour will be, wow, this could hurt. And I actually could avoid the hurt if I just stop talking about Jesus. If I just walk away from this and say, okay, never mind, forget I said anything. And he's, he's warning us that in that hour that he knows us. And in that hour, there's going to be the temptation to pursue the immediate relief and make everything feel better. And that's why Jesus says, remember this. They will hate you and they will persecute you because you belong to me. Because they hated me and they persecuted me. And so know that and believe it. What they did to me, now they'll do to you and they're doing it on account of me. Therefore, trust because I'm the one who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. Trust me. By the time John wrote this gospel, late first century, there had been lots of Christians that had suffered under Nero. 
that had lost everything, in fact, many that were put to death. And so John is writing this to an audience in that first century that doesn't need to be compelled to believe that this is true. They understand what it is to be marked for hatred and suffering, and some of, some of their loved ones had paid the ultimate price. John himself, we believe, writes this from the island of Patmos. He has been put into a kind of solitary confinement of his own cut off from fellowship because of his belief in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus gave this warning so that we would not be surprised. So that shock wouldn't come and we'd say, oh, now what do I do? He's telling us ahead of time so that we'd know what to do. Same thing we always do that we're supposed to do, right? Trust Christ. Believe that, that he said this would happen and so he is very much still in control. Just a month ago, armed fighters in Somalia dragged some people off a bus and interrogated them about their religious beliefs. And a witness described it at this point, said, two of the men, quote, remained adamant that Christ is their savior and they cannot deny the Christian faith, and they were shot dead. The wife of one of those men said this, I am still in shock. Frederick has left me with a two-year-old son too soon. It is painful to lose him. I don't know what my future will be, but I am persuaded that one day we shall see him in heaven. You and I may not face an hour just like that. We may. But Jesus Christ said, I am telling this to you now, and I am promising this to you now, so that should you face that hour, you will remember this, that I am with you in that hour because I promised that this hour was coming. And so believe on me. As you believe on me for salvation, so believe in me for eternity and know that I hold the future. Trust me. Remember this. These promises, at this moment for the disciples, probably not what they wanted to hear. Watching Jesus be crucified made this even more profound. We know they go into hiding for those couple of days because they are now afraid of what's going to happen. And then, and then we fast forward. And Jesus Christ ascends into heaven, and maybe we're two months down the road. And Jesus Christ now ascends into heaven, and the Holy Spirit is now with the disciples. And these disciples who were fearful, remember Peter denying Christ, are now standing in the streets of Jerusalem declaring, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And they are crying out the gospel of Jesus Christ and they are being arrested for it. Acts 5.40 says of the Jewish religious leaders when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So here they are now, these disciples, now being sent out. They are being arrested and beaten. Exactly what Jesus said would happen is now being carried out. And you have the Jewish leaders saying, now listen, this is just a sample of things to come. You don't do this anymore. You go out from here and you don't preach anymore. And you know what the rest of the story is. The next verse says, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day from the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. Isn't that incredible? Jesus said this is going to happen. It's now being lived out, and they are being beaten and told, if you keep this up, it gets worse. And they walk out of that council saying, we have been able to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ as he said we would. Let's go preach some more. May God grant us the grace and the strength that you and I would do that.
day to day, that we would live out the gospel of Jesus Christ, whatever the cost. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are grateful. We are thankful that you have given your life as a ransom for sinners. We are fully undeserving. We believe the truth of your word says that you came and you gave yourself in our place for our sin to pay a price that we deserve to pay as those who defied the truth of God. And so, Lord Jesus, we come with hearts full of gratitude and joy, thankful for your work in saving. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, would this be the day that you would draw them, that you would open their eyes to see the beauty of Christ and the the salvation that only he can give. Father, for all here who are trusting in Jesus Christ, it is our prayer that you would this week grant us through your spirit clarity of speech, courage to speak, wisdom, power from your spirit. Cause us to not be ashamed. When there are opportunities to speak of Christ, cause us to not shrink back from those but to count it a privilege to declare the name of Jesus Christ and to incur whatever that might bring in return. Lord Jesus, we we come before you thankful for the privilege of being able to declare your name. We know that even in our own country there is a, a widespread turning from you, and so we pray even for the generations to come, the generations that these young families here are raising, that you would enable them to raise children who would who would grow to love you first and foremost, that you would save them and that you would cause them. As far as our country may turn from the cross of Jesus Christ, may your people stand firm. May Christ be exalted, whatever the cost. Lord, help us this week to to take joy and that whatever we might endure for the name of Christ would be a sweet privilege that we would take on the count of the name of our Savior who we love. These things we pray in that great name.